a friendly critic points out that I've been waxing lyrical about APIs and the GPT family of chatbots without ever actually saying what an API is. Perhaps I just assumed everybody knew, but clearly they don't, so I thought I'd spend a while talking about it. Well, first of all, what does it stand for? It stands for Application Programming Interface, which sounds terribly grand and serious, and in many respects, of course, it is. But it's not as unfamiliar as one might suppose. If you forget for a moment the computer software context, we all use a variant of APIs all the time. And I was looking for an example. I found two that I think are very clear illustrations. One of them is the light switch. When you switch on a light, an alternative would be for you to go out and generate some electricity, wire it up through the national grid, or you might have to build the national grid, bring a wire to your house, feed it through a meter, run the cabling through the walls, design and make either an old-fashioned incandescent light bulb or a modern low-energy bulb with a suitable socket that you could attach to the end of the wire and put that in a lamp or hang it from the ceiling or wherever else. That, as you might say, is a bit of a palaver. And so instead we have what I suppose you might call is an AEI, an Application Electrical Interface, and it's called a switch. And what the switch does is to bypass or render redundant, not for everybody, of course, somebody has to do it, but to render redundant for the user all the mechanical engineering and electrical engineering necessary to bring the light to your ceiling. The switch is your interface. It's the as you might say, simplified, user-friendly face of a very complicated system that most users could neither build nor most of us frankly understand. So that's an application engineering interface and in case that's a little bit too simple, let's think instead about a motor car. We're all familiar with the way the word dashboard has been adopted by software engineers to describe a front screen that shows you some of the details of what your system is doing. Well, the, the dashboard, of course, comes from the notion that we have in a car. And in a car, you have another sort of API. This is a, an application mechanical interface because you don't need to know about batteries and alternators, about engines, combustion, diesel, electric, petrol, and all the other things that go into making a car. All you need to do when you learn to drive is to steer the wheel, to deal with the pedals, and to a certain extent, the gear lever if you have one, and the handbrake. The rest of it 
is hidden from you deliberately. You can get involved in it if you want to, if you're a nerd, if you're a fanatic about cars, and all well and good if you are, but most people just want to switch on and go. It's a sort of API, it's an AMI. Now an application programming interface pretty much does the same thing, but for software. So that if what you want to do is calculate something, you will go to a suitable API and it will ask you what do you want to calculate? And you'll say, I'd like to know what 7% compound over 10 years is. And all you have to do is perhaps type in the 7 and the 10 and you press a button. And it will calculate it for you. And it's nearly 2. It's famous 7-10 rule. But that's neither here nor there. You just put in the numbers that are of interest to you and it does the work in the background. Now the vast number of episodes that we've done in this series on the GPT chatbot AI phenomenon have really all been about an API and a very successful API which is originally the chat GPT API. What is it? It's just a screen and it invites you to type what you want to say or ask into a box using ordinary typewriter skills, which are incidentally also an API, because you don't need to know how a typewriter works in order to use one, and it will give an answer. So you have a situation where the front end of the chatbot, one of the most advanced and sophisticated and brilliant pieces of engineering of any kind that have ever been done by human minds comes to you as little more than a chat interface where you can type as if you were on Messenger or Facebook or anywhere else. And that's the API. And an awful lot of clever stuff goes into building it, but for you as the user it's almost as easy as pie. There are of course different levels of sophistication. I have been using a piece of programming using Python that also involves an API because I don't actually have to get my hands dirty with the neural net. All I do is write a little piece of code that sends a message to the OpenAI server. This, in other words, doesn't use the API as their website uses, but this is using a Python script on a laptop. You can work on a mobile phone nowadays. And you send the message up to the server in wherever it is, San Francisco, and it comes back with an answer. So that's a little bit more complicated as an API, but it is still an API. So how does this connect with the great excitement that was generated? And quite a lot of anger too, which I might come to if I've got time. The great excitement that was created by the announcements only a week ago that ChatGPT and its brothers and sisters 
had negotiated API access to a number of very powerful external software houses and facilities and all through the use of suitable APIs. Well, what it means is this. Let's suppose that we take Wolfram, about which I know a bit. Wolfram is a system, the Mathematica package for doing mathematics by computer and the Alpha suite for accessing very large quantities of data which have been curated by the Wolfram organisation from all over the world. And both of them require you as the user to access them in certain ways. Now, in the case of Wolfram Alpha, you can simply type something very close to an ordinary language question into a box. So you can say, what's the, what's the population of Uruguay? What's the... GDP of Uruguay, what's the per capita GDP of Uruguay and where does Uruguay sit in the world in relation to GDP, per capita GDP, etc. Length of life and Wolfram Alpha has collected all this data and vast amounts more and all being well it will answer and it also contains and uses a substantial proportion of the Mathematica capacity to process what you do. So you can also ask it mathematical questions and it will at least have a decent attempt at answering them, although it's not quite as sophisticated as Mathematica itself. So it's an API. And what has happened as a result of ChatGPT getting access to it or the negotiation of an API contract with Wolfram, I don't know any details, is that the chat GPT, the chat bot, can now put the question into Wolfram Alpha or Wolfram Mathematica in a rather more sophisticated way on behalf of a client. So if you now say to chat GPT, and I should preface this by saying this is, I think, only, only available on GPT-4. And you do have to opt into it and you do have to be prepared to pay extra for it. And although it may be in the public domain, I at the moment at least don't know what those extra costs are. But that's really neither here nor there. You can say to ChatGPT, I think if you're on the paid account... I'd like you to make use of Wolfram Alpha or a whole heap of other web access engines if you think it's suitable, if you think they're necessary. So I'll say to you, or you'll say to the chatbot, What's the position of Uruguay currently in the league table of gross capita per, per capita domestic product? And it would be perfectly reasonable for the chatbot not to know that. 
It may do, but I'm not, I'm not making an I'm not making a claim one way or the other. I'm using it as an example. It would be perfectly reasonable for the chatbot not to know that, and so to say, all right, I don't know, but I know a man who does. I'll phone a friend, and he goes to the Wolfram API. And the point here that is, was about the, the cars and the light switches at the beginning is that he doesn't need to know a detailed scheme of how Wolfram Alpha or Mathematica run because the chatbot can access the API just as you and I can, although I would be prepared to bet with considerable more facility and speed. So the chatbot can access... Can you hear that it's raining? First time for a long time I've been walking in the rain. Anyway, uh, quite mild day, so it doesn't really matter, I just get wet. So it will put the information, or a request for the information you've asked for, into Wolfram. Wolfram will answer. Alpha. Wolfram Alpha will answer. There will be a little charge sent or I don't know how much and chat GPT will serve up the answer now of course you could do it yourself but the difference is that it can do it on demand so it will decide which of these API's is optimal for your question and having then decided which of them is optimal it will go to the relevant API and ask pouring with rain. I'm getting very wet. But the point is very important because what it means is that the chatbot now has access not just to Alpha but to a great many other things as well that vastly extend its resources even though it's trained on 570 gigabytes of digital text it now, in addition, has access to untold gigabytes or even terabytes of additional information. Now, let me just say again what I said a couple of episodes ago about the implications of this for the way the chatbot itself should be seen. Until now, pre-API access, we knew sometimes to our benefit, sometimes to our cost, that the chatbot was doing it itself. It was going it alone. Everything that it said, brilliant as it was as a piece of technology, was generated internally by what it knew. It didn't reach out to anything or anyone for help. But that, that had a positive and a negative. The positive... No, let's deal with the negative. The negative was, of course, it was limited. There were things it didn't know. Sometimes it would try and make them up. Sometimes it didn't know what it didn't know. And so the lack of this API contact meant that it was restricted by its isolation. But to be restricted by your isolation is only a negative until you want to think. Because... I'm repeating what I said the other day, but it's really important. 
You can't think with the contents of something that's in a book on a shelf on the other side of your study. You may know that the book is there, you may even have read it, perhaps more than once, but the only extent to which your non-conscious brain can weave the contents of that book into its thinking, or the let's call it processing, because thinking makes it sound terribly conscious, and of course it isn't most of the time, but the only things it can weave into that processing are the things that it already knows and has inside its head, inside the brain. It's memory. It's experience. And the chatbot, until this recent change, was in exactly the same position. So that whatever it said, you knew it was saying because of its training. Not because it had found it somewhere else, but because it had either been taught it or learnt it or worked it out for itself or inferred it or even confabulated it, let's be honest. But the point of that was that everything it produced could, to a very close approximation, be said to be the result of isolated thinking, or at least processing. As soon as you have a, a, a reaching out, that's not true. It's, it's more or less exactly like more or less exactly like, and come to qualification in a moment to the more or less, it's more or less exactly like having an encyclopedia on a shelf or a book on a shelf or notes in a notebook that are not in your head. You may know they're there, you may know they're important, you may have made a mental note to read them and learn them at some stage, but so far you haven't. And so your non-conscious brain, when you're asleep, when you're doing something else and distracted, does not have those things available. I can't stress this point so more, I mean, it's just so unimaginably important in relation to this technology. However, I said there was a, there was a qualification. Just like you and me, if we're in the middle of a problem, maybe a literary problem, a, Thing to do with writing or to do with mathematics or to do with science, our understanding can sometimes come to a point where we say, hmm, I know there is something about this in a book that I've read and I think the book's over there and I can go and pick it off the shelf and start to read it. And to that extent, and it's an important extent, to that extent I can supplement what my brain has access to, but admittedly only really through a self-conscious process of going and looking deliberately for it. What I can't do is use stuff that I don't think to use. I mean, that's obviously a tautology, but it's very important because our brains are using things that our conscious brains don't imagine we even know or that are relevant to, to what it's thinking and doing and processing all the time. One of the great analogies, one of the parallels, the most profound parallels between neural nets and you and me is that we come up with answers without being able to say where the answers have come from. And so do neural nets, and for pretty well exactly the same reason. That we have uh, processing going on inside us, in the background, beneath or behind, 
Well, you might, in view of some of the things I've said here, like to think of it as being above consciousness that is far more powerful precisely because it can integrate things that we wouldn't even dream of integrating. And that's exactly the situation with these neural nets. Exactly. This is why it's so important to understand the multiple processes that are involved as they do their work. So the neural net in its isolation is very much like a human brain in its isolation. And it can now, through these APIs, reach out and phone a friend, know a man who does, know a woman who does, take a book off a shelf, look at a video, play a record, pick up the phone and speak to somebody who, who they think does know. All of this, it can do all of that, or at least all of it. It can do an enormous amount of it. And Zapier which I haven't mentioned yet, is a website of websites of APIs. So if you go to Zapier, what you'll find is a vast array. I think somebody said there are over 4,000 different APIs that give the user access to 4,000 different sets of information, expertise, powerful analysis, including financial, legal, historical, etc., material. So Zapier, Zapier allows us to reach out and phone lots of friends, but all through one access point. And that's important too. Not least, of course, because whoever controls the access point controls quite a lot of the flow of information. If it falls into the wrong hands, and I'm not for a moment suggesting that it has, or will, but if it falls into wrong hands, then there are obvious ways in which you can shut down access to certain things, as the Great Firewall of China does for the Chinese population as a whole, or tries to. So I hope it's clear what the positives and negatives are. I'm not even going to venture a guess as to which is the in the ascendant. Personally, I think that, as I said the other day, this must represent no more than a staging post, a stepping stone. That to reach AGI, artificial general intelligence, capable of solving the most general problems that human beings are concerned about and probably more besides, since I think that one of the signs of artificial general intelligence is that it'll find problems that are more difficult even than those we conceive and find ways to solve them. I think what we can say is that before that happens, it won't be a matter of phoning a friend or knowing a man who does. It will be necessary, and this task is massive, massive in the challenges that it presents. Let's be, not be under any illusions about it. It will be necessary for it to integrate and be trained on the contents of Wolfram Alpha, Wolfram Mathematica, all the websites accessible through APIs, through Zapier. Because that's the only way you get the information where you really need it 
which is in the neural net where you can access it in all sorts of ways. And let me just make one last remark, since I'm getting very wet today, <laughs> is that the ways in which you can access this information, this is one of the most exciting things both about the chatbot and about human brains, are unpredictable. We just don't know the next thing that we're going to think. We don't know the power of our brains to come up with new solutions. We don't know the power of our brains to invent new questions and solve them. And we don't know that about the chatbot either. And there's no doubt that it's going to do both those things. And when it presents us with answers, it will take us back to the black box problem. That it will be presenting us with answers to problems that we barely perceive to exist as problems, couched in terms that we won't be able to understand. Really, that's what we're talking about. That's the black box problem of AGI. But precisely because, to go back to my earlier analogy, it's bigger than we are. It's a Russian doll on the next level from the one we're on. Already, these APIs will lay it open to increasing that to another level, a higher level. More Russian dolls yet. And there's no doubt that it will climb that stairway. Whether it's summon us to heaven or to hell, it's an entirely different matter. But I do think that as a step on the road to, to artificial general intelligence, it is massive. And I hope that I've at least given you some idea of why it matters by explaining an API in terms of making the access to some of these really complicated systems something that you could expect a chatbot to master without having to master everything about the system themselves. Okay, I'm going to have to try and get home without dissolving in the rain. Thank you for listening. <laughs>